All right. Well, uh, that's our missions update. So uh, last week we had our post-Thanksgiving uh, potluck, and so we didn't do our study in Ephesians. Uh, we skipped that study, but today we're going to be picking back up, coming back into that study, and uh, and uh, we just have a few weeks left of our exploration of this letter by Paul, and then, of course, we've got Christmas coming up. And if you're not aware of what our schedule is for Christmas, we're going to be having our Christmas Eve service on the 24th, and then since Christmas lands on a Sunday uh, this year, we're not having service on Sunday morning. So hang out, you know, eat the milk and cookies that you left out and all of those kinds of things. And, uh, and then we'll meet back the following week after that. Uh, if you've got a Bible or a Bible app with you, we're going to jump into our study in Ephesians today. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 is where you want to go to. So last week, or last time rather, we finished up chapter 4. Uh, where Paul was encouraging us to put on the the new life that Christ has provided for us. And he made some important contrasts between the life. It's a lot like the song we were singing here this morning about Lazarus rising up. You know, uh, uh, Paul was making these contrasts between the, the darkness of the death that we were part of and participating in and the new life that, that God has given us through Jesus. Janelle did a great job of expounding on that, that focused life uh, for us. Now Paul is going to loop back around and make similar points as he did in chapter 4, only this time he's going to change up the metaphor and he's going to move from talking about a contrast between life and death to a contrast between light and dark. Um, so when we left off, we were encouraged to, to imitate God by, by living a life that's filled with love. And remember when we're talking about love, in the biblical narrative, we're talking about agape love, that self-sacrificial love of God, not love as our culture uh, so uh, nebulously defines it, but that self-sacrificial love uh, uh, shown to our fellow human being. And this, this whole section, this whole second part of Paul's letter is, is all about putting shoes on these doctrines of our faith, of, of explaining what it's going to look like in real life, if we live out what we say we believe is true about what Jesus has done and, and, and what it means, not only in our lives, but to this world. And, and here's the thing. Make no mistake. Uh, Paul is going to be meddling in our lives today. So uh, just, we just got to deal with that. It, 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 he's going to be dealing with some really private areas of our lives, and it may make us uncomfortable but, you know, if you're comfortable with everything you read in the Bible, you're not reading it right. Uh, so uh, so it's, the important thing to remember about what we're going to read is that it has to do with identity. And keep that in mind in, in, in all that we're reading here. Too often we read what Paul says here as stuff that we have to do to stay in good standing with God, you know, to keep God from being mad at us. But But that is not what Paul is going to be saying here. And we're going to get into that. Paul is describing who we are, and he encourages us to live according to that reality of who we are because of Jesus. And we'll explain that as we get into the section. So if you're there in Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 3. He says, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, those are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. 
You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Okay, right off the bat, we have to deal with this really unfortunate translation of verse 6 here. And this is really one of the big issues I have with the the translation that we use here, the New Living Translation, NLT. It takes this phrase, which is a phrase Paul uses in several places in the New Testament, and it translates it with a clear interpretive bent. In other words, it's, it's not just giving us the translation of it. It's giving us the interpretation that the translator has to his words. And, and that's the thing about a dynamic equivalence translation, which is what the NLT is. I don't want to bog you down. I can just see eyes glazing over like, okay, here we go. But so it's not a literal translation where it's taking each word and translating it literally for what it says. It, it takes the, it, it translates the Greek by providing what is believed to be the intent of the words and using contemporary language to communicate that. So Usually, that works out wonderfully. I'd say nine out of ten times, I'm really stoked with what they do with this. But here, and in other places, especially where this phrase is used, it's pretty bad. Uh, So the phrase in the Greek, when translated literally, is the wrath of God is manifested on the children of disobedience. The way the NLT words this it's the way actually many read that phrase as though there are certain things that made God angry and he's going to destroy it. You know, it's like finding a palmetto bug in the kitchen late at night and you're just like going to stomp that thing. Uh, And it's that's the the image that's conveyed in the way that they've worded this. But Paul's usage of this phrase is far more complicated than that. The biggest insight that we have concerning this phrase that Paul uses about the wrath of God being manifested is found in Romans 1, where Paul uses this phrase, God's wrath is manifested, and then he goes on to describe how that works by putting on display all the elements of this broken world. And so what he's communicating, you know, uh, he uses another phrase there in, in Romans chapter 1, God gave them over. In other words, God's wrath for sin is manifested in that he gave humanity what humanity demanded, a world without him. His wrath is revealed in that he's allowing humanity to create its own order for things which becomes self-destructive. That's how Paul understood the wrath of God. That, you know, it doesn't mean that there is no final judgment or anything like that, but that's just a culmination of the wrath that was put on display in that God allowed the human race to do what we wanted to do. We want our own order. We want our own way. And we see the self-destructive nature of that, how this is all played out. And so the wrath of God, when he's talking about to, to say, you know, God is angry, you know, how do they word it there? To, that, God will, that God's anger will fall on all those who disobey him. I'm not going to say that that's absolutely incorrect, but it misses the point of what Paul is trying to say. That phrase is being put out there as though God is just waiting, you know, for you to get out of line and we're going to give it to you. And, And that's not the idea that Paul is conveying. This broken world in its terrible state is evidence that God's wrath was revealed and his wrath was revealed 
in his willingness to let us do this, to do this on our own. And remember, wrath is not God's final word. He's offered salvation from this mess. The final word that God spoke about this uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The final word is Jesus, is salvation, is redemption in this. So it's very important in our imagining of God that we get the picture that Paul presents to us, not an irritated, angry God with a cosmic mallet behind his back just waiting for us to screw up so he can... He can squash us. What he pictures is a heartbroken creator who's allowed his creation to defy him and all the while pleads with them to get off that sinking ship, provides them a way of rescue, but never forces them because there's no love in a forced choice. Okay, so that's my qualification on verse 6, and we'll get back to this, but let's look at what Paul is saying in this section. He presents us with two triads. First, he warns us off sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. And then he moves on to how we talk, referencing obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes. It's pretty straightforward. Sexual immorality is the idea of using our sexuality as a means for personal gratification instead of its intended expression within a committed, loving relationship of marriage. When he says impurity, literally uncleanness, that's a word that kind of uh, took on a new meaning after the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uncleanness dealt with types of foods and touching dead bodies and things like that. By the time we get to the New Testament usage of it, it's it's more to, to talk about a mindset that is determined to seek physical gratification or physical pleasure without any sort of moral restraint. So it's a, you know, impurity in in that sense is what that's describing. This mindset that I, you know, I want what pleases me and that's all. He puts greed into this mix, which isn't that an interesting combination of things? Uh, uh, Because there's a common relationship with all of these that has to do with being controlled by our desire, wanting fulfillment from something other than God which is why he equates it then with idolatry, looking for something else that's going to finally make us whole. And it can be, you know, sexuality. It can be all kinds of different things that we go pursuing, that we allow our desires to begin dictating in our lives. And then he highlights how we talk, because often that's the way these behaviors start to manifest with our willingness to entertain it in the mind and then express it vocally will then open the way to, to expressing it with our physicality. So to counter that kind of talk, Paul urges us to thankfulness, something we talked about last week, uh, right before our potluck. Gratitude names something as a gift. And when we view our bodies as a gift from God, well, we remember to use that gift as God designed it, according to his purposes and plan for it. Uh, Our bodies were meant to be the means by which we were going to be able to bear God's image into the world to reveal what his character is like to all of creation. Our bodies were not intended to be vehicles for our own gratification. And that's the challenge because, man, that possibility is there. It's, it's, it's present all the time. Paul warns us then not to be fooled by those who excuse this sort of behavior and language. That is, you know, the argument that we hear all the time, well, it's not a big deal. It's just normal. It's just normal part of who we are as human beings is just sex. It doesn't matter at all. Paul says, don't listen to that. It's not normal. 
It may be normal according to cultural standards and norms, but it is not normal. And all we have to do is look at the broken state of this world. Look at the ever-growing list on the CDC for sexually communicable diseases. And we recognize, no, they, this is not actually normal. This is part of the consequence of sin and rebellion against God. God had something far more noble intended for us in our physicality than the pursuits that are the basest. Paul isn't saying in verse 6, you know, don't do this stuff or God's going to be mad at you. Understand that. He's not saying that. He's saying don't live like that anymore because that's not who you are anymore. You were part of the brokenness of this whole corrupted place, but that's not you anymore. And his point is God wants us to live in the reality of our redeemed identities. And we say this all the time, you know, our our behavior, our works, you could say, are not the basis for our salvation, but they are still part of the equation here because they are the result of our salvation. They're the result of this new relationship that we have with God. It will change the way we live. There is a morality that accompanies the Christian life But it's not moralism. And there's where we have a big struggle all the time. Moralism, you know, is where everything revolves around keeping certain standards of behavior. But but there is a redeemed morality that's associated with this. It's it's a life the way God intended it to be. Not that, you know, you break this law, this rule over here, and suddenly you're on the outs, but a challenge to rise up. Like we were singing in that song again. Where's Robert? Then that song, I like that song. To rise up out of that grave. You were part of that. You were dead and buried in the consequences of these sins. But there's more to you now. That's Paul's words in, in this. So, so that's actually what Paul is getting at in verse 5 when he says, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. And we've got to really qualify this statement because too often this phrase about inheriting the kingdom gets reduced to something like, you know, these kinds of behaviors will keep you out of heaven. And honestly, as a pastor over all these years, I've heard this a lot. Like, can a person do this or that and, you know, still go to heaven? And it's largely based on this phrase that Paul uses here and also in, in 1 Corinthians. In different areas, he uses this terminology And I honestly believe Paul would be mortified to know that we're using his words that way. Inheritance is is key in Paul's concept of what it is that God is doing. And inheritance is a hyperlink for us. It links us to something else in in the biblical narrative. Anybody, can, can you think of what inheritance, what important inheritance stuff was happening like in the Old Testament? Abraham's inheritance. What What else? The land, the promised land, right? I mean, that was a huge deal in the, in the Old Testament. That wasn't just like a little off side of the story. And it is part of Abraham's inheritance. It's all part of this whole thing. This, and then this idea that when Israel got into the land, they were to become distinct from the cultures around them, not to imitate the cultures around them. Now, if Paul were saying in this, you can't do these things and still go to heaven, then we're right back to a salvation by works ideation, which would have Paul contradicting himself all over the place in the New Testament. No, I believe Paul is saying these kinds of works 
are not part of this inheritance that God has for us. Those kinds of behaviors, these behaviors that he's describing, don't characterize the world that's coming. They're part of the brokenness of this present world. They don't represent what it is that God has in store for us. That's what Paul's saying. Living from those broken morals doesn't display the inheritance of the world to come. We're just living as though this is all there is. And Paul's saying, no, there's more than that. There's more than that. Something far better on the horizon. So don't live in the shadowlands of this broken world. Live from the redeemed identity God has given us through Christ. You know, the culture around us, and I want to qualify, you know, I talk about the culture around us, and I worry sometimes people think I'm saying, yeah, those liberals out there. I'm saying the culture. That includes the liberals and the conservatives. There's a lot going on in this culture right now that seems to have an orthodoxy all of its own. And we recognize that. We see it all the time. You, believe me, you can't be a pastor and, and stand up in front of everybody, a group of people, and talk for 30 minutes every week and not be concerned about what's going to come out of your mouth because, you know, the culture is just waiting for somebody to say something that they can tear apart. But our culture, you know, there's an orthodoxy here. And part of our culture has elevated sex as the be-all and end-all of life. Pornography, you realize, is a billion-dollar industry. And, and it thrives on dehumanization. Of, of using people as objects for personal gratification. And our culture does all that it can to normalize it. That's just sex. It's just whatever. The culture also tells us to gain as much material wealth as we can and that we won't be fulfilled until we have more stuff and more security around us. And Paul is saying, guys, that is not for you. You're better than that. You were meant for so much more than the stuff of the shadows. You're more meaningful than that. Live from the reality of your redemption. And it takes discipline. And that's the thing about it. That's why we're called disciples. Disciples derives from this idea of discipline. We're never going to just drift into a life that's more focused like we heard about last time. We're never just going to drift there. It takes determination to live the life that we were meant to live. And that's what he moves on to then in verse 7. He says, don't participate in the things these people do. For, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what's good and right and true. And then verse 10 is so important. Carefully determine. What pleases the Lord? The contrast of light and darkness. Now, again, you know, anytime we have a rabbi talking about light and dark, we should immediately know what he's drawing from. You may not. But anybody know what he's talking about? Why, why he's coming back to this idea of light? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was chaotic and, and problematic. And God said, let there be light. Light is the first stage of God's intended order for creation. And it becomes then representational of the conflict after the fall, the contest between light and darkness, between God's order and the disorder and chaos 
that's always trying to resist it. And so this idea is, is baked into the entire biblical narrative. So Paul is saying that once we were people who lived and had our existence in the disorder and chaos of sin, but now we're people brought into God's redeemed order, true life, the good life, as Jesus described it in the Sermon on the Mount, a life that's right and just and trusting in God's providence. And then he challenges us in verse 10, carefully determine what pleases God. That is, find out what's in harmony with God's intent for life. And as I said, this isn't something we just drift into. We don't drift into that kind of life. Living from our redeemed identity requires discipline on our part. As just about everything good in life does, requires discipline from us. That's why we're doing what we do today. That's why we gather here week by week, week after week. You know, and the fads come and go and all kinds of things are exciting and new and whatever. But we're week by week. We come back to this learning from what we believe to be God's word to us. Finding out what constitutes the good life from God's perspective. This is the noble meaning and purpose that's been bestowed on us as just regular human beings. And as I said before, our culture, like every culture in this fallen world, has its own idea of what the good life is. Every culture and nation has set itself to the task of recreating paradise on this earth, but according to human wisdom and not God's, according to human order and not God's order. And our culture provides definition of highest good. And we've talked about it already. I mean, you gain wealth and power and accumulate stuff and and have as much pleasure as possible, you know, maybe without hurting someone. But after all, you're the highest good. So you do you and people are expendable. And, And your reality is of utmost importance. I mean, that's certainly something that we hear on a regular basis. And all of this is conveyed with a thin veneer of virtue signaling so that we can elevate our own personal sense of morality above our neighbor so that we can efficiently cancel them should the need uh, arise. The culture is loud. I mean, it's so loud. And its philosophies are all around us. And again, I'm saying, don't limit this in your thinking. When you hear me say these things like, oh, those broken, those woke liberals or, you know, whatever, it's it's all of it. It's all of it. And it's loud. It's a constant static in the ear. And it's hard to hear anything else. It's hard to shake it out of your head. But we gather here. We gather around this word. We hear what God says through this word and it cuts through the static and it grips a hold of our hearts. You were once full of darkness, but now you have light in the Lord. So live as people of the light. Be willing to challenge in this, is what he's saying. Be willing to challenge cultural assumptions and hold them up to the light of God's word to decide, to decide and discern whether this is in sync with God's order or not. Whether this is in sync with what God intended for life or how God intended us to carry ourselves as human beings in this world who are meant to put on display 
God's goodness and God's love for his creation. Do these things, he says, not, not in order to be saved, but because we're saved. And now we're people of the light. Okay, well, let's read the rest of this, this section here, verses 11 through 14. He says, take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Well, Paul, just don't mince words here. Tell us what you think. <laughs> take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It's shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. This is why it said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Good choice on that song today, Robert. I, I, I got to give it to you on that, buddy. Paul, Paul puts a lot of emphasis here on, on not participating in the broken morality of this world. And here he challenges us to expose the worthless behavior. And this, this challenge here has become problematic. Because when we read that, we intuitively imagine this exposing is exposing how bad someone is so that everyone else can see how bad they are and, you know, despise either what they're doing or what they represent or whatever. And I mean, that's that's become another cultural norm. That's all part of of, you know, the world's approach to cancel culture. That's that's the whole thing. You know, well, I don't I don't, you know, I'm not going to this person said something on Twitter and I'm canceling them out of life or that person kneeled during the national anthem, I'm canceling them out of my life. That's just another cultural norm, but that's not at all what Paul means. When he says expose it, he expounds on what he means. Live like the light. And it'll reveal the distinction and hopefully the pitfalls of a life outside of God's intent. And he concludes it with what many scholars believe is an ancient hymn that the the church would have sung together, calling the sleeper to rise and receive the light. So this is not about calling people out or shaming them or calling them sinners in order to expose darkness. This is about living in such a way that it reveals God's goodness and the contrast becomes attractional. And I truly believe that his point is living from a redeemed identity provides a hopeful example for others to follow. Living in darkness is terrible. I mean, it's distressing, it's confusing, you can't make out what's there. Everything becomes a threat. Remember after Hurricane Michael when the power was out and it was dark? Do you remember how dark? I mean, it was unreasonably dark around here. You didn't even realize how much artificial light you depended on until it was taken away. And it was dark and the trees were all twisted up and there were piles of debris everywhere. And then we were hearing rumors of looters running around. And so there's just this awful sense of you you can't make sense uh, of anything. And you'd look out the front door if you heard a noise and you couldn't tell, is that just a broken tree or is that a person sneaking up on my yard? And you couldn't walk very easily in the dark because it was so hard to see all the dangerous wreckage that was everywhere. And remember just how glorious a simple flashlight felt. Because why? Because it immediately brought order to the situation. It immediately helped us make sense of where we are, of what's going on here, of where we need to go. We could see more clearly when we express God's loving care 
for our fellow human being and refuse to dehumanize them. In any way, we are revealing something beyond the hopelessness and darkness of this fallen world. We're illuminating a better world to come. We're bearing the image of God and his great love for creation into the mess of this darkness. Exposing the darkness is exposing the pitfalls and danger and revealing also how things that at one time seemed threatening are no threat at all. Light brings order and hope. And that is the life that God has called us to live. Lives that reinforce that, that reinforce the hope, that help us to make sense of what's going on around here. And believe me, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of discipline to stay with this because as I said, the static is loud and the order and the chaos is everywhere. And we once were part of that, Paul says, but not anymore. No, there's more to you than that. You have the capacity to reveal the goodness of God in any given situation in which you find yourself. And in that revelation of what God is like, the contrast is made and the darkness is revealed for what it is and the light becomes a beacon of hope. So let's embrace this challenge. Let's live from our redeemed identities. Let's let go of the shadows that we once lived in. Let's Let's be a light that gives hope to this broken world. Let's take that as a challenge in terms of exposing the darkness. Let's not run around and start creating enemies everywhere, creating threats that don't actually exist. Let's live as the light and let the light do its work. Right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand with me, please. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, it's challenging to us many times. Lord, you know our hearts. You know the, the challenges that each of us individually faces with our own struggles in this broken and fallen place. You know the discipline that it requires and how often we don't do this very well. But still, you've never given up on us. You've never turned your back on us. Your call to us is the same as it always has been. Rise up. Come to me. Be the light. There's more to us than anyone could have ever imagined. Help us to live from that. Help us to live from the redemption that we've received from you. And I pray that for each of us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.
come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling.
tell the world of the treasures you found. I won't come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide, forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of 